through 38. When he had gone out, and when he had gone, that's meaning Judas, when Judas had gone out, we talked about betrayal last week. When he had gone out, Judas, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here's, here's what we find as we find that this commandment that Jesus is giving seems very similar to an old commandment. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus chapter 19, we actually read that. In Leviticus 9, uh, 19 verse 18, it says, love one another, um, or I'll just read it, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So the question becomes, what's new about it? What's new about this new command? Because this command seems like it's really, really old from the days of Moses, and that Jesus is not giving us a new command, but that he's reiterating an old command. And yet what he says is, it is a new command, and I think what we need to find in the midst of this is that the motivation that we see is something different. The motivation is different. Even as we think about this, in the book of Leviticus, what they're talking about is this is how you are called to love your brother, and your brother in that day was all of the Israelites. So when you think about your tribe, but also the intertribal relations between tribes like such as Judah and Issachar and Zebulon and Manasseh and Ephraim and all the other tribes, right? Um, how you're to love one another. But what Jesus does is Jesus begins to expand that, and he does that throughout his ministry. Uh, when we see it with the, the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, we also see this in, in Luke chapter 10, when the disciples are trying to figure out who is my neighbor, and he talks about the good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verses 33, about a good Samaritan actually being his neighbor. And what he says is, is I'm going to give you a model I'm going to give you a model of what it is to love. Now, we've seen that in the midst of the washing of the disciples' feet. Self-sacrifice, servanthood, that's one aspect of this love that Jesus gives us. But he says something peculiar in John chapter 13, um, and think about this. This motivation for the love that we are supposed to have for our brothers, which again is expansive, is this. It's the glorification of the Son of Man. In John chapter 13, verse 31, it says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Now, what's about to happen to Jesus in John chapter 13? 
beyond the farewell discourse, what Jesus is getting at is I am going to be glorified on the cross. Now I want you to think about that for a second. The cross was a Roman instrument of torture and degradation. It was meant to actually um, say this person is horrific. It would almost be, I mean, think about this. We actually celebrate the cross. People wear the cross. I mean, many of you have crosses on right now. We have a huge cross right there. In ancient times, this would be similar to us putting up, I don't know, the electric chair, you know, up. And saying, we're, we're going to put an electric chair up there. This is what we're talking about. So how does this, this place of torture and degradation become a place of glory? Now, the idea of glory that we find in John chapter 13, this idea of glory is meant to give us uh, an, an understanding. Glorifying means revealing or displaying for all to see. So in that sense, what Jesus is saying is, now the Son of Man must be glorified, meaning that what is happening to me will be revealed to you and will be on full display, and I will be lifted up. In a similar way, when we think about this idea of glory, it's similar to uh, maybe if you go into somebody's office and they have their diploma is up on the wall. Well, that diploma, in a sense, is glorifying that person, the displaying, revealing what has happened. If you go into other people's houses or you go into many people's houses, you'll see pictures of children up around the walls, right? And what are we talking about our children? We're sort of uplifting them. We're not glorifying them in the sense that we worship them. Well, maybe some of you are. All right, but you know, so stop it. Um, but but in, in the other ways, like we're, we're uplifting them, displaying them, revealing them to whoever comes into our home. But Jesus is saying, I am going to take something as, you know, despicable as the cross, and I am going to reveal and display my love for the world. Now, what's interesting, at least in my mind, is that when we think of glory, we think of something that is a success, something that is a victory. For example, uh, many of you are, are can't wait for college football to start up. You know, there, there's, there's great excitement about college football, you know, starting here, you know, in Lawrence and a few. But there's, there's some fight songs that actually talk about this. Notre Dame, for example, Notre Dame's fight song is Notre Dame uh, starts it out with, Rally Sons of Notre Dame, sing her glory and sound her fame. Sing her glory, meaning uplift her, reveal, display the glory of Notre Dame. Now, there's also a fight song that we, we read about, and this is really funny, uh, the University of Georgia, and they've had a lot to, you know, be excited about, you know, in some sports, but it literally says, glory, glory to old Georgia, glory, glory to old Georgia, glory, glory to old Georgia, G-E-O-R-G-I-A. That's it. <laughs> then they sing it again. And then there's some, there's some lyrics, and then they sing it again, Right? It's not real hard to be doing well in Georgia, apparently, right? Like, you're just kind of working your way through that song over and over again. Now, when do they play that song? When does Notre Dame play that song? Do they play it when they fumble? Do they play it when they have an interception? Do they play it when they lose? 
No, they play it when they succeed and when they win and when there's a touchdown and when there's times of celebration. You see, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, let's look at this glory. Now, let me explain how Christ is glorified on the cross, how he displays and reveals himself to us. First, is that Christ is glorified in his cross by reversing the great calamity that befell mankind when Adam, our first father, sinned. You see, when Jesus is glorifying himself on the cross, what he's saying is, I will reveal to you how I will begin to undo what Adam first did. You see, in Romans chapter 5, verses 18, it says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That's the beauty of what Jesus is saying, that he's taking something as as despicable as as a Roman torture instrument, and he turns it into a throne. And he says, on this cross, I will justify and undo all that flows from Adam's first sin. I will reveal this to you. But he goes on, and he says, the effects of the fall— Christ is glorified because what we find is the effects of the fall of man. Death, in particular, are dealt with at the cross of Christ. And if Jesus saves you, and if God saves you, then you are saved indeed. Because if Jesus holds on to you, and the Father holds on to you, nothing can rip you out of their grasp. And that's good news for us. As a matter of fact, when we think about Romans chapter 8, when we think about Romans chapter 8, verse 35, this is so comforting. It's um, comforting for those who are uh, struggling, those who are at the end of life. When we read, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. And that love was manifested on the cross. Brothers and sisters, can death separate you from the love of Christ? No. That's good news. That's good news, and these are verses and and words that that we, again, need to um, really tattoo on our hearts. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see this. um, Now, Jesus is certainly displaying and revealing his glory, his, his, his love for mankind. But it also says in, in John chapter 13, where it says, if God is glorified in him, 1332, um, and that, or actually in verse 31, that God is glorified in him. So not only is Jesus glorified, revealed, displayed, but we also see that the Father is also glorified when we think about the cross, when we think about what happens on the cross of Christ. Now, how is God glorified? How is God revealing? Well, there's a couple ways. Actually, there's, there's many ways. Let me just go over three quick ones. 
The Father is glorified in this, that it is perfect justice. You know, Paul says in Romans 3.25, he has forbearance with our sins. And so he doesn't, you know, execute us for our sins as we daily commit those sins. But in this sense, that all the sins of everyone who has ever committed a sin, past, present, and future, who believes in Jesus, all of those sins are punished upon Jesus. You see, God is glorified by, by showing himself to be a just and righteous God. You see, every, every sin, let me define what sin is. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Anytime you do something you shouldn't do, or anytime you omit or don't do the things that you should do, that's what a sin is. It's missing the mark. And every sin that you ever commit must be punished by a righteous God. If it wasn't punished, it would, he would not be a righteous God. And so he does. And, and by belief in Jesus, Jesus is punished in our stead, in our place. We call him our substitute. You see, God displays perfect justice in Jesus. But not only that, we also see that God is also faithful. We see that God is glorified in his faithfulness in the sense that he fulfills the promise he made back in Genesis 3, verse 15, where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, the, the first time that the gospel is ever hinted at, everybody's waiting for this. And God is faithful in the sense that he provides Jesus. All the prophets were speaking about one who would come. And Jesus shows up, God provides, God's plan of salvation shows that he is faithful. Not only is he perfectly just, but he is perfectly faithful. But we also see that God reveals and displays his love for us. The love of God is displayed as well. We see this in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The love of the Father for us. Or in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God shows or demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We see that, you know, God is glorified in the midst of um, showing his faithfulness, his justice, his love in the midst of the cross. We see all of that. Now, as we think about this new commandment, we see that Jesus is saying that the motivation for this commandment is the cross. Let me say, um, in the midst of, of being in a church that takes the Bible very seriously, that we take doctrine very seriously, that we, are, we really want to uphold the truth of the Scriptures. We believe that the, the Bible is the only rule for faith and practice, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, that when you hold your Bible in your hands, you are holding the love letter from the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that we are meant to subject ourselves to everything that is written within the Word of God. That's our view of the scripture. And in the midst of um, this command for us, we are called to love one another. And let me give you this picture. And, and, I, and I've said it before, but as we grow in our faith and our love for Jesus, our love for each other should be expanding, always. Our love for the world and for the lost should be expanding as we understand the gospel, 
Now, at the same time, as we study the word of God, our convictions about who Jesus is and about what we are called to do should be narrowing to the point where they are razor sharp. Our convictions should be razor sharp, but our love should be ever expanding. Okay? Now, what that means is, is that as you study the Word of God and as your convictions narrow and become razor sharp, your love should be growing. Beware if your love is narrowing and your convictions are broadening. If your convictions broaden, you have something that does no no longer look like Christianity. It looks like Unitarianism, and that everyone goes to heaven, and it thereby um, negates God's justice and his faithfulness and the the sacrifice of his son. But I got to tell you, I've been at places where what happens is everybody wants to... um, be so truth-oriented. And again, we're for truth. We're for truth. Here, let me say that, okay? I'm going to lose my job. We're not for truth, right? If I, say, if I say that. Like, we are for truth. But we are also for love. We need to grow that. Now, because of this, let me give you a couple things that happens in the midst of the love of Christ and because of this new commandment to love one another. Because of this new commandment to love one another, there will be radical reconciliations among people who are enemies. That's what happens when the gospel overcomes barriers. That's what happens when when Jesus comes. Think about this. Um, In in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, it says this, that, that Jesus has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What does the gospel do? This is what it does. We see that it destroys the ignorance and fear of bigotry. That's what the gospel does. That's what the love of Christ does. It overwhelms bigotry. It is the love of God in Christ our Lord. What can overcome apartheid? What can overcome the caste system in India? What can overwhelm classism? It's the love of Christ. It's the family of God being ushered in to one people. The people of God loving Jesus as we are called to. With the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit working in us, Jesus destroys the ignorance and fear of bigotry. He replaces fear with peace and ignorance with wisdom and understanding of man's problem. That's what happens when we have an ever-expanding love and we contemplate what it is to follow Jesus and his example of loving others. If that weren't enough, um, we think about it in this way. Um, Because Jesus is glorified, We can now, um, because of this new commandment to love one another, malice and anger will be transformed into forgiveness, generosity, and peace. Meaning, you can forgive others who have transgressed against you because you know that you have been forgiven because of the love that has been demonstrated in Jesus Christ. 
Like you can't be in relationship very long before you're hurt by somebody else. But when you begin to contemplate the gospel and how much you have been forgiven, you become convicted about not forgiving others, not loving others, maybe not even speaking ill of them. Colossians chapter 2 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, when we think about that truth, when we think about that we were dead in our sins and trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, which essentially means you're just bad people, okay? That Christ died for you, forgiving us all of our trespasses. We can then forgive others. Because of this new commandment to, to love others, it looks different. The motivation comes from the cross, but it looks different. Because of this new commandment, we will be more concerned about serving others than being right all the time. Have you ever been around someone who had to be right all the time? It's just a really pleasant place to live, isn't it? It's annoying that they have to be right in every instance. And even though they might have won the argument, they often are alone in the midst of their victory. We want truth in the midst of our doctrine and lies, but we want humble servant leadership that is like a surgeon only bringing the smallest amount of harm in order to bring healing to the one who is in error. Does that make sense? Brothers and sisters, when we use truth, we do it in, in a way that is very loving, and we do it as a physician who tries to bring the smallest amount of harm to the individual. Certainly, when, when a surgeon performs surgery, he has to cut someone, but the cut is meant to be the smallest that he can make. And then after, and by the way, after the surgeon actually fixes what is wrong, he begins to heal and to bind up all of those things. I'm afraid sometimes when people who are just overwhelmed with truth, what they do is they just, you know, they cut and they hack and they're butchers, not surgeons with the truth. You know, somebody, you ever heard the, the term, that guy is just a hammer looking for a nail, you ever hear that? If you haven't heard it, it's a great saying. It means basically like that guy only has one tool in his box and he's just going to nail and hammer everything. Now, when we think about this, because of the love that you have for Christ, because you love, because of the love that we have for neighbors in the world, there will be people who will go to foreign countries who have never, because there are people there living who have never heard the name of Jesus. Because of the love of Christ, we will see people going forward, out these doors, into neighborhoods, but even beyond that, because they want to love those who have never heard the name of Jesus, because they want them to hear about forgiveness and redemption and mercy. I mean, that's, that's what the disciples are called to. That's what the disciples are called to, to planting churches and to going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. That's what we're called to do. I think about this. Uh, there's a, a story of, of a woman. Um, many of you may have heard of her, maybe not. Her name was Mary Slessor. And Mary Slessor 
was a, um, a young woman who at the age of 28 um, actually went to Nigeria to become a missionary there. And she went to a place called Calabar, and this is what she faced. Uh, Mary Slessor, again, she was um, you know, born in, um, I think she was, well, she was born in the 40s. Uh, she was, in 1876, she left Scotland and she went to Nigeria. And this is what we read about. Evangelism in Calabar was a slow and tedious process. Witchcraft and, spiritualism, or, and spiritism abounded. Cruel tribal customs were embedded in tradition and almost impossible to subdue. One of the most heart-wrenching of these customs was what we would call twin murder. Superstition decreed that a twin birth was a curse caused by an evil spirit who fathered one of the children. In most cases, both babies were brutally murdered, and the mother was shunned by the tribe and exiled to an area reserved for outcasts. Mary Slessor not only rescued twins and ministered to their mothers, but also tirelessly fought against the perpetrators of this heathen ritual, sometimes risking her own life. She courageously intervened in tribal matters and eventually gained a respect unheard of for a single woman in Nigeria in 1870s, 1870s, 80s, and 90s. This woman went, why did she go? Because of the love of Christ. Why did she, and of these twins that she would save, she actually adopted seven of these twins who had no family to actually take in. She, she eradicated the practice. She went up against witch doctors. As a single British woman from Scotland in Nigeria. She was so well respected for the next quarter of a century and more, many would continue, or, um, you know, she was, she was um, many would continue, but here's what happened to her. For 15 years, she stayed with the Okoyongs, which is an, an upriver deep within Nigeria, teaching them and nursing them and arbitrating their disputes. She would literally get in between witch doctors who wanted to sacrifice the wives of the tribal chief when the chief died, and she would say, no, we're not doing that. This single Scottish woman would get in the way And what happened was she became so respected that she began teaching them and nursing them and arbitrating their disputes. Her reputation as a peacemaker spread to outlying districts, and soon she was acting as a judge for the whole region. And in 1892, she became the first vice consul to Okoyung, a government position she held for many years. In that capacity, she acted as a judge and presided over court cases involving disputes over land, debts, family matters, and the like. Her methods were unconventional by British standards, but they were well-suited to African society. There's a a detail here of of a man from the government who went to go visit her while she was holding court, as it were, in the, in the deep woods of Nigeria. Again, men who had gone to this part were all slain. This single woman from Scotland, because of the love of Christ, went in. And one government official said this. He goes, when he went to see her, he said this. He said there was a little, frail old lady at the end of her life 
with a lace shawl over her head and shoulders, swaying herself in a rocking chair and crooning to a black baby in her arms. Her welcome was kind and cordial. I had, a, I had had a long march on an appallingly hot day, and she insisted upon complete rest before we proceeded to the business of the court. It was held just below her house. Her compound was full of litigants, witnesses, and onlookers, and it was impressive to see with what deep respect she was treated by them all. The litigants emphatically got justice, sometimes perhaps like Shylock, more than they desired. And it was essential justice unhampered by legal technicalities. And again, she sought to handle the disputes. She would travel hundreds of miles to settle disputes. She would rescue children. She would train these children. And then she would also have services in the midst of these small villages. And she encouraged more missionaries. And she pleaded with Scotland, please come, please come, please come. Now, why did she do that? Because of the love of Christ. She had seen it displayed in her own life because as a young girl with an alcoholic father working in a, um, a mill 12 to 14 hours a day, she experienced the love of Christ and wanted all the children that she could find, all the people that that were his to hear the gospel message. So she left in 1876 and spent the next 40 years in Nigeria because of the love of Christ. Because of this new commandment to love one another, Christ becomes even more lovable to us. The love of Christ, because of this new commandment to love, with a servant's type of love, you might be um, taken advantage of in your daily life. Your generosity, your willingness to serve may be taken advantage of, but what people mean for selfish, evil desires, God can turn to good, and he can use a crooked stick to draw a straight line over and over again. And that's what we're kind of worried about, right? Like, if we show love to the world, won't we be taken advantage of? Won't somebody get one by us? So What? God will use the love that you have for others, for your brothers and sisters in Christ, but also for the world to bring about the salvation of those who hear the gospel. The beauty that we find, the love of Christ makes us love his commandments and they become a blessing rather than a burden. And this is what happens when, when we be, become loved by Jesus, what Jesus calls us to, what he commands us to do, they actually become things that we want to do. Jonathan Edwards says this, he says, love to Christ, if it be ardent and lively, transforms the soul very much into love. It destroys envy and malice of every kind and softens and sweetens every action. It makes the soul in love with religion and holiness and sweetens obedience and mortification. And it not only makes duty easy and repentance and mortification, and that's, mortification is this idea of killing sin, mortification pleasant, but it sweetens troubles and crosses themselves because the Christian knows that they are ordered to him by the person whom he dearly loves and who dearly loves him.
How easily can we bear things that come from those we love? These are the excellent effects, and this is the usefulness of the love to Christ. And we see that displayed, glorified in the midst of the cross. Now, we think about foreign missions. We think about the love of Christ ending bigotry. We think about it making the commands of Christ something sweet to us. We think about bringing the gospel message to those around us. And yet, I'm here to tell you, what do you do when you fail? What do you do when you're like, I'm not loving Jesus? What do you do when, you know, quite frankly, let, let's go to the second part of this passage, John chapter 13, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Simon Peter, because apparently Peter hadn't spoken in two or three minutes, says, you got to hear my voice now, right? And Peter's like that, right? Peter only opens his mouth to change feet, I think, um, as he puts his foot in his mouth over and over again. Some of us feel that way. Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me. But if he goes on, he says, he, he says but I'll lay, my down, I'll lay down my life for you. What do you do when the words of your mouth be, you know, betray or, or the, the, the actions of your life betray the words of your mouth? Meaning like, Lord Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will share the gospel with that person down the road. And yet the actions of your life and what you actually do are totally contrary to that. And you become very discouraged because you recognize the fact that what you're doing and what you believe are in opposition or are, you have this cognitive dissonance that's going on in your soul and you're going, what, what do I do? Have I denied Christ? And that's what Peter's doing right here. Peter says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, go, after, I'm gonna go with you. Wherever you go, I will follow you. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus in verse 38 says, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, certainly those who are with Jesus denied Jesus. But, but what's the good news? The good news is here. And we're going to get to it later, but i got to tell you what the good news is. As, Je as, as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus restores Peter three times in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, Peter is restored Sitting by the beach, after they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter in, in verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he asks them again, him again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And then he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you, you know everything. You know that I love you. You know, and Jesus said, feed my sheep. And he ends in verse 19 with follow me. The beauty is we are going to fail. Well, that's not the beauty. The beauty is the forgiveness that we have when we do fail. The beauty is that the Lord Jesus opens up his arms and says, I forgive you. I paid the penalty for that already. That's the good news of the gospel. So when you fail, when you feel, run to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I have failed you. Would you please forgive me? And he will always say, I forgive you and I love you. It's almost like when you see little toddler children who fall down and they begin to cry because they've fallen. You know, a good mom and dad is always going to pick them up and hold them in their arms and care for them. 
That's what our good, good Father does for us because the penalty for our transgression has been paid. Christ has been glorified. The Father has been glorified and we have been adopted into his family. Jesus says, follow me. Now in the same way, when we think about this table in front of us, we think about this table representing his death for us. This glorifies the Son. This bread, which represents his body, is broken for you. This cup, which is filled with this grape juice, which represents his blood, represents this new covenant, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. He says in the book of Hebrews, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So this, this bread represents his body broken for you. This cup represents the blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And what we do when we come to this, we say, Lord Jesus, you have saved me. You have forgiven me. I am yours. Help me to follow you. We'll sing this in, in just a second. Um, let me grab my bulletin here. We'll sing this as the first song. But I, I love this song where we say, I will trust my Savior Jesus. It says, Jesus, only Jesus, help me trust you more and more. When you come to the table and we sing that song together, what we're saying is, Lord, my my trust is often wavering. My faith is weak at times, but Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to believe the gospel. Help me to believe all that is true about you. And help me to follow you. And Lord, I have failed you this week. In thought, word, and deed, I have failed this week. Lord, restore me, restore me and our relationship to you. And this is what communion does. We commune with the Father. We commune in the midst of the body of Christ. It's it's a wonderful thing for us to come to the table and be restored and to have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ flow forth from heaven. Grace upon grace being poured out upon us. Those people who deny Jesus, those people who um, doubt Jesus, because remember, even when in the upper room, whose feet did he wash? Judas's, Peter's, Thomas, all the other disciples. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I pray, Lord, that you would use this meal, this supper. Father, these are signs and seals of the covenant of grace. Father, I pray that you would use them so that we might believe that you would use them to glorify yourself. Father, that we would believe and and see the, the cross as the display of your love, of your justice, of your faithfulness to us. And Father, just as Jesus can transform the cross from something that is wicked and despicable, Father, he can transform us. He can make us into his family. Father, we were once enemies, but now we are your beloved children. Father, may we believe that and trust that. And Father, as we come, Father, I pray that we would come in faith and that you would build us up in Christ. Father, set apart these elements from their common use. Father, they will always remain bread and juice, but Father, we pray, Lord, that you would bless them in such a way that this uh, is a means of grace whereby you you pour forth grace from your throne of grace to your people who need it. Father, we need this. We need Jesus desperately. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.